Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. Joining me today is Phil Magnus, a senior research fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research. Welcome to Free Thoughts, Phil. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I'd like to talk about inequality and the assumptions we make about it and the kind of policy that thinking about inequality seems to lead us to, or at least to be proposed. And also the fact that there's this received wisdom that inequality has been going up a ton and it's a huge problem. And maybe we can label the beginning of that with Piketty in his book, Capital in the 21st Century, or the paper earlier. So first off, what did Piketty say about inequality and, and what does he continue to say about inequality? Yeah, so he's basically telling a century-long narrative about the United States. And he says that uh, according to his statistics, uh, which he does derive from uh, federal income tax data, that if you look in the, uh, the early part of the 20th century through about the end of the Great Depression, beginning of World War II, that uh, income concentration among the top earners of society, and he really focuses on the top 1% of earners and the top 10% of earners. He says that income concentration uh, was at an all-time high. Uh, then he, he observes that around the mid-century period, there's kind of a trough where uh, top incomes decline. There's a greater uh, equalization with uh, the, the rest. So you got the, the 1% and then the 99% of the Occupy Wall Street uh, rhetoric uh, plays very heavily into this, uh, uh, this narrative, this depiction. But then around mid-century, so uh, inequality drops off, income concentration shrinks. And then uh, according to his statistics, from about 1980 to the present day, uh, it's been going back up again, uh, even skyrocketing to uh, levels that we haven't seen since uh, before the Great Depression. So his whole narrative is that this century-long movement uh, inversely correlates to the height of the income tax. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you look at the, uh, the top marginal bracket for the federal income tax system at the mid-century when there's this inequality trough he depicts, uh, rates are – uh, in some years, above 90% for the top earners, uh, and then for most of the century, it's at least above 70% for the top earners. And then he says as soon as Ronald Reagan comes into office in uh, 1981, uh, begins a succession of tax cuts, uh, those rates drop down, and that's what he attributes causally to uh, this claimed rebound in inequality. So that's the gist of uh, Piketty's uh, thesis, or at least his historical narrative of what's going on in the United States. And then by implication, it's always uh, – well, if inequality is going up and inequality is bad, what do we do to address it? Uh, he has a convenient answer, and that's uh, we need to go back to these extraordinarily high income tax rates that existed in the mid-20th century. And he is explicitly uh, not a fan of inequality. It's not pure positive economics, right? He thinks that inequality is inherently bad. Right, and, right. And uh, should be mitigated that, for its uh, own purposes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's very closely tied into his policy preferences. Uh, so uh, it, it's almost like the uh, uh, the, the inequality cart uh, is driving uh, the horse of his research agenda in some way. So uh, he, he likes taxes. He wants uh, higher taxes. I kind of uh, analogize them to – I don't know if you've seen the old uh, Disney Robin Hood movie where – That's uh, my Chris favorite John one. Taxes, <laughs> taxes, more taxes. Uh, that seems to be his answer to almost everything. And, and we'll all be in Nottingham and we can, yeah, exactly. and we can sing that song when they're in prison. Uh, but so what actually – well, as you point out, there's been a lot of – other people who've been tracking inequality, which is which is not as easy as it might sound to track, and and the Piketty say as uh, data and Zuckman, I think is a, the new guy is an an outlier compared to the other ones. 
Right. So uh, this is something that uh, several economists look at. They're the ones that uh, that definitely get all the attention because they fit a uh, a narrative that's very popular politically, um, very closely tied to some of these tax discussions. Uh, but there are other people that work on it. Uh, I work on some of the statistics myself, um, along with uh, Vincent Geloso of at Bates College. Uh, there are two treasury economists, Gerald Botton and David Splinter, that work on uh, on some of these measurements. And uh, the, the big question we try to do is uh, is ask what can you actually extract out of uh, federal income tax data? Uh, is it a good measure? Is it reliable? Um, are there problems that we need to account for? Uh, and then there's other ways that you can measure it. Uh, so there's survey data where they actually act, ask people how much they make or what their net worth is. Uh, several uh, federal agencies do this. The Federal Reserve has a really robust uh, survey of consumer finance that asks uh, net worth on a, every three years, I believe. Uh, but uh, it's all attempting to ascertain the same thing. And what happens if you if you compare all these different metrics together, uh, all the different uh, stories about uh, what's been going on over the uh, uh, the last century and really the last uh, 35, 40 years or so, so around the start of this Reagan-era tax uh, reform movement, uh, you have – very different depictions. So Piketty, Sayez, and Zuckman show skyrocketing inequality. They show it's just uh, shooting back up to Gilded Age uh, levels. But if you look at, uh, say, the Otten Splinter series, which does a, uh, a different approach using IRS data, it's, uh, it's actually pretty flat. It only, uh, only a slight uptick since about 1980 that we can, uh, can see in that series. If you go to some of the survey data, uh, it's a little less frequent, so you don't have every year. It's every three years or every two years, depending on which survey you use. Uh, but uh, the, the the rise that's depicted since 1980 is actually very, very modest compared to uh, Piketty and friends. Uh, so they're the one uh, story that shows spiraling inequality. You have all these other studies that say uh, maybe it's a little more uh, of a complex picture here uh, in, that's consistent. It's in line with historical fluctuations. Uh, so you get these two things going together. Which one gets all the attention? What's the spiraling, uh, uh, skyrocketing inequality story of Piketty and friends? Uh, meanwhile, you have uh, other data work, and I'd argue better data work, uh, that shows a much more temperate uh, type of a, a pattern playing out. Uh, so in that sense, they're the definite outliers to uh, what everyone else happens to be doing. It does seem kind of weird to use tax form data for income. I, I waited tables for five years and right. the IRS would have considered me extremely poor uh, because of how much I reported. But of course, that's that's like a tip. Uh, tips are kind of hard to discover. Oh, but also rich people can do things to manipulate your income. And, and that's another thing that you point out that these tax rates – change the reporting data to some extent if you have a 70% or 90% tax rate. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. People tax plan and they have been since, uh, you know, prehistory. Uh, it's in your interest to try to minimize your tax bill. Uh, but it, it, let's just stick to the IRS numbers. If we go all the way back to uh, 1917 is about the first year we have really good statistics. The IRS uh, uh, started keeping and publishing annual records of what people were paying in taxes. Uh, and this is, you know, just a few years after the income tax itself is created in 1913. But from 1917 to the present, we have annual tax statistics that are uh, are fairly comprehensive. 
but they're plagued with all sorts of accounting errors. They're plagued with all sorts of underreporting uh, problems that uh, just play out across the entire century. Uh, one stat I like to point out is prior to World War II, uh, less than 10% of households in the United States were even eligible to pay the income tax because the threshold was so high. It just uh, kicked in at a, uh, a very, very high level of income. Uh, but what this meant is that uh, people that are sitting right around where that cutoff is to make you eligible for the uh, the income tax, you consider them probably lower middle class today. Uh, a lot of them just simply decide not to report income. Mm -hmm. It's it's just self-reported. Uh, that changes in 1943. That's when they switch over to uh, payroll deduction. And this is kind of a, a pay for World War II type of a measure. It's also a longtime dream of uh, Franklin Roosevelt to tighten up the tax system, but uh, a bit of a revenue grab. And what you see is when uh, payroll deduction starts, it's not the rich that start suddenly reporting all sorts of new income that they had previously been hiding. It's people at that uh, lower and lower middle class uh, uh, threshold, that cutoff uh, point in the brackets, that uh, they suddenly uh, – uh, uh, just explode in numbers. So uh, you go from just maybe a couple million people right at the threshold a year that are filing, uh, and then the very next year, suddenly 20 million people have shown up on the tax rolls that previously were not uh, reporting anything. So what we see is the way that the income tax is administered changes the way that people report, also the rates. So uh, in the mid-1950s is when they really kind of standardized the post-war tax system. And President Eisenhower signs this massive overhaul of the tax code uh, into existence in 1954. It actually doesn't change the rates. It leaves these 90% uh, plus uh, top marginal rates intact, but it standardizes and, uh, and, and really uh, – formalizes uh, several decades' worth of deductions and tax exemptions and carve-outs and tax-exempt uh, shelters. So uh, like if you invested in municipal bonds, uh, those are tax-free uh, in, in certain areas. Uh, so all sorts of, uh, of deductions and carve-outs are standardized. And what it ends up doing is uh, keeping the statutory rate the same but over the next decade, the effective tax rate, the rate that people actually pay, drops precipitously, like uh, 15 percentage points uh, on uh, millionaires uh, just in the course of a decade. So it's, a ma it's a massive uh, drop in the tax burden, and it's all coming from these other ways to get around uh, paying the sticker price that's actually in the statute books. So uh, just so to clarify some terms just for people who – Hopefully our listeners know this, but our listeners come from all different walks of life. We're talking about marginal versus effective tax rate, right? right. right? And then also if it is 90%, you know, talk a little bit about the way you someone would change their behavior if there was a marginal tax rate of 90% to to help get some of these, get you know, not pay all the taxes that they owe. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, in 1963 is a good year I like to use as an example because that's the last year that the uh, top marginal rate is above 91% or 90%. So it's 91% of 1963. Uh, and this kicks in at all income that's earned above $200,000. Uh, you're taxed at the absolute highest rate, uh, which is 91%. Uh, so you can scale down from there. So if you're, uh, you're, you're at a lower income bracket, uh, than $200,000 for an individual earner, you, you may pay 70% on income above a certain amount, and then below that 50% on income above a, a, a certain amount. And it's actually a, a, a really aggressively scaled up system. So the sticker price, what's on the statute books, uh, 
in the 1950s and 60s, um, a single filer who made um, $38,000, for example, uh, which today, you know, that would be rich. a fairly substantial income. Yeah. That's uh, an upper middle class income, uh, roughly three hundred thousand uh, dollars, depending on when you do the conversion. But uh, uh, someone that made uh, thirty eight thousand dollars in the nineteen fifties and early sixties uh, would have paced a uh, top marginal rate above that of um, of seventy percent. So it's uh, exactly what Ocasio Cortez and some of these people are talking about today. But that's still a relatively low threshold. Uh, the 50% rate actually kicked in at uh, less than $20,000 uh, for most of the mid-century. Hmm. So uh, the, the, and these are the sticker prices. This is what uh, would kick in. Uh, a 50% rate would be considered kind of a, a middle-class to upper-middle-class income today uh, where that threshold was. Uh, so on paper, taxes are much higher in the 1950s and 60s than anything we experience today. But because you have all these deductions and exemptions and other areas where you can legally shelter your income, and this is the brilliance of the Eisenhower plan, they, they write it into the statute books and they keep it stable. Uh, so that big 1954 package is not really overhauled until the 1980s. What does that mean? It means you can tax plan not just from year to year, but decade to decade. Uh, all you need is a good accountant to uh, discover where the loopholes are, discover where the exemptions and de deductions are, and uh, you can take advantage of that very, very easily. So what the average person does is they're able to chop uh, their statutory tax rate, and that's including not only the top marginal rate, but if you were to take the average sticker price rate. So a, a millionaire in 1963 would pay 91% top marginal rate, but the uh, uh, the, the full rate at least if you went by the statute books with no deductions on their entire income, would be in excess of 80% still because the threshold is so low. Mm -hmm. uh, so you have really, really high rates, but that person in 1963 is paying an average effective tax rate. So the, uh, the dollar amount they actually pay to the, income, uh, to the IRS as a percentage of their total income earnings for the year. Uh, so their effective tax rate is only about 40 to 41%. So it's less than half of uh, everything that's on the statute books, uh, not only the marginal rate, but uh, if you were to take a sticker price rate of the entire statute book. Well, I think that one thing that advocates for these top marginal tax rates would probably also advocate for is getting rid of all these exemptions and deductions, correct? Oh, absolutely. There, uh, so there are fewer deductions today on the statute book, and this is mostly after the 1980s reforms. Uh, than existed at any point in this period. Uh, there are other ways you can shelter income by moving it abroad, but uh, at least in terms of the uh, the domestic exemptions and deductions. Uh, so I like to go back through old magazines and newspaper ads to see what they were uh, uh, advertising as uh, as tax planning in say the 1950s and 1960s, and you can find advertisements. They'll say, "Come take a cruise vacation around the world, tax free." <laughs> And you, you get on the tax, uh, you get on the cruise uh, ship, and you'd have like a seminar on Wednesday afternoon where you sit around and talk about real estate for an hour. <laughs> and they, they'd package them with the uh, 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 the travel agencies. Another popular one was uh, uh, come to Costa Rica and learn about real estate investing. And real estate investing really means traveling up and down to the beaches to see which beaches look nice that you may potentially buy some property on. Uh, these are everywhere in travel magazines, business magazines in the 1960s through early 1980s. So a lot of that is really curtailed and cut in. And there's some other complex 
uh, portions of the tax code that pertain to real estate income of what you could deduct or claim as a loss. Uh, but these became really, really solidified. And uh, part of the big trade-off of the 1980s, this is what Reagan does to get the rates down. Uh, he, he offers a deal to the Democrats and says, uh, if we cut the rates from 70% down to 50%, down to eventually 28% for the top marginal rate, uh, we'll get rid of all these loopholes. We'll rein it in. We'll tighten uh, the enforcement. Uh, that's the trade-off. That's the deal. We'll have a more simple and transparent tax system. And the Democrats take that deal very prudently. Uh, I think it's an improving uh, move on the tax system. But what you get with someone like Ocasio-Cortez or Elizabeth Warren or some of these other politicians that are calling for the uh, uh, the rate hikes, they want to bring back the mid-century rates of 70 or 90% plus uh, top marginal income tax rates. Uh, they kick in at a very low threshold as well. Yet at the same time, they want none of the exemptions, none of the deductions, uh, nothing that could potentially serve as an income shelter. So they're all uh, all about enforcement. And I guess just to put a, uh, um, a, a simple summary of what this all ends up being, it's uh, essentially turning uh, personal finance into something that would resemble like a national security state where everyone is subjected to extreme audits and uh, uh, extreme scrutiny of their personal finance. That's the level of enforcement that some of these people talk about. So it's a complete loss of uh, personal uh, financial privacy and any liberty that would be associated with that as well uh, to just to get to the point where uh, they can enforce what they're calling for. Well, these halcyon days of the 50s ideas have been around for a while. The the left wants to work in the fifties and the right wants to li- live in the fifties, you know, leave, right. leave it to beaver right. they're, style. They're, they're both in this, uh, <laughs> this false golden age. Yeah. And then you have a PKD writing in the Boston globe between 1930 and 1980, the rate applied to the highest incomes was on average 81%. And the rate applied to the highest inherited estates was 74%. Clearly this did not destroy American capitalism far from it. It made it more egalitarian and more productive. Now, the interesting thing there is, is does he, is he, do you think he's not aware of the fact that no one actually paid those taxes or are they just entirely symbolic to him? Um, or does he think that they actually helped eliminate wealthy people? Uh, I, I think there's actually a little bit of both going on and he's been kind of evasive on this. Um, so I've been challenging uh, Piketty for uh, the better part of a decade in in my own work. And Cato published the uh, that great little book, Anti-Piketty, mm-hmm. that uh, – goes through all the critiques of capital in the 21st century when that came out in uh, 2014. But uh, one of the things that um, that I found striking when I was reading the book and myself and, and Bob Murphy really took him apart on this critique is he really doesn't understand U.S. tax history. <laughs> uh, he, you could go through and just basic facts about U.S. tax history. Uh, so, for example, he's attributing uh, tax cuts that he doesn't like. They always get assigned to Republicans. And tax hikes, which he does like, always get assigned to Democrats. Uh, but that's not always the case. Well, uh, Reagan there are had a Democrat many examples con- in history. So Herbert Hoover, yeah. uh, being the worst one, he raised the income tax rate right in the middle of the Great Depression. And Reagan uh, so had a Democrat Congress. Yeah, it, yeah. it's a uh, a um, so there's a complete uh, politicization and and really simplification of, of Piketty's understanding of tax history. And I think this is an extension of it. Uh, as he he sees the simplistic narrative tied to the statutory rates, but he really doesn't get into or attempt to account for the reality of uh, of people 
lowering their rates, lowering their effective rates through intentional components of the tax code. And I think that also gets back to a normative question. He doesn't like those intentional components of the tax code, so why care about them? He also wrote, going to what you're saying, uh, between 1880 and 1910, while the concentration of industrial and financial wealth was gaining momentum in the United States and the country was threatening to become almost as unequal as old Europe, a powerful political movement in favor of improved distribution of wealth was developing. This led to the creation of a federal tax on income in 1913 and on inheritances in 1916. That's not accurate. No, it's not at all. Uh, this is, a, again, back to where did the federal income tax come from? And this is a story from uh, American constitutional history. Uh, there are a couple points in the 19th century where they, uh, the, the U.S. government adopted an income tax, but it was always kind of on uh, uh, somewhat suspect constitutional grounds. The main reason being the uh, U.S. Constitution has a, uh, a pretty heavy restriction on direct taxation. Uh, they don't ban it outright, but they, uh, uh, the original Constitution says that direct taxes must be apportioned among the states – According to this complex formula, and what it effectively comes down to is you have to assign the tax burden by state according to the census of mm -hmm. those states and then allocate uh, uh, direct taxation, income taxation internal to each state individually. So it would be a, a uh, politically untenable formula to execute on if they ever attempted it. Which I think was uh, the point. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah. in um, in 19 – or 1894, they attempted to uh, pass an income tax. Um, as part of a major revenue overhaul, but the Supreme Court steps in and they strike down the key portion of it because it violates this apportionment rule. Um, so for the next decade and a half, as people are talking about revenue measures, including the income tax, uh, they, they keep coming up. Do we try to force another Supreme Court challenge? Do we do a constitutional amendment? And what happens in 1909 is there's this really weird set of events around a uh, revision to the U.S. tariff code. And it's a time when protectionism's at the high water mark. Uh, you, see, you think of all these uh, uh, industrial interests in the northeast of the United States. They've managed to secure protective tariffs against mostly European competitors to their industries uh, to keep out goods. And this had been a political grievance of pretty much the rest of the country uh, for the previous 50 years, every time they'd revise the tariff schedule, uh, someone would come along and say, wait a minute, this is unfair. We're having to pay higher prices because you're trying to keep your competitors out abroad. And that was how much – that was almost all the funding of the government, correct? Exactly. It's by far the biggest uh, revenue component comes from the tariffs. But what the protectionists do is they, they kind of sneak in through the back door on the revenue tariff and add protective categories to benefit themselves. So every revision – uh, to the uh, the federal tariff system between the Civil War and uh, really 1913 is kind of like a free-for-all of uh, protectionist special interests. So in 1909, uh, President Taft calls on Congress, says we need to revise the tariff uh, uh, code. It's become out of date. Uh, there are some revenue issues we need to address for it. And as usual, all the industrial interests show up in the committee hearings, and they buy off congressmen, buy off senators, uh, and they turned this tariff code revision into kind of this protectionist free-for-all. So what happened in 1909 is the Democrat leader, um, uh, Joseph Weldon Bailey of Texas, uh, says, you know, we're not going to fight this head-on anymore because we're going to lose as we've lost every time in the last 50 years. Uh, I've got a new maneuver. We're going to try and flank it. And his flanking maneuver is to propose an income tax 
And the idea is if we transfer the revenue away from the tariff system over to the income tax system, we can also kill protectionism. Mm-hmm. So it's a really bold move. It was hard to be uh, a free trader at the time, right? I mean, was, yeah. he, was he a relative free trader and, and uh, he realized it was he, impossible to get over these tariffs and this, these special interests? Yeah, he, he's kind of a, a, a Grover Cleveland style Democrat. Okay. So, uh, yeah, very much immersed in the old style of uh, of free trade policy. He wants a low revenue income tax in place of the tariff. Uh, so he proposes this kind of a, as a surprise in the middle of the tariff schedule revision, and it throws the Senate into chaos uh, because first he's got the Democrat block behind him. Then there are some Republicans on the fence. Uh, it's a mixture of progressives that actually do kind of want it for Piketty style reasons, but there, there's like less than 10 of them. Uh, but there's also Western senators that are unhappy with the uh, uh, the Eastern industrial interests that have been screwing them on the tariff for decades. Uh, so suddenly – Senator Nelson Aldrich, who's the sponsor of the tariff revision, realizes that he doesn't have the votes to carry his protectionist schedule through. Uh, people are thinking and taking this income tax swap uh, seriously. Mm-hmm. And Bailey's plan had been uh, to drive the bill through with the income tax and use that to force another Supreme Court challenge. Uh, and they thought that they could litigate their way through or use the litigation as a stepping stone to an amendment. So – uh, what Aldrich does, the protectionist senator from Rhode Island, in order to salvage his tariff bill, uh, he executes a floor maneuver, uh, kind of a surprise floor maneuver in the Senate uh, that strips the Bailey bill of all of its meat, uh, takes out the income tax. But in exchange, he offers kind of a consolation prize to get all the senators back on his side. He says, uh, we will also take up a constitutional amendment. Uh, to uh, permit an income tax at a future date if you just pass by tariff get the schedule. Mm-hmm. So he gets his tariff bill. Protectionism persists. Uh, they get to vote on the constitutional amendment. All the free traders support it as well as the rest of Congress. And that's where we get the 16th Amendment from. Uh, so Bailey thinks he's going to be in power forever and able to uh, uh, continue to keep his protectionist tariff in, in, in place. But the Republicans get wiped out in the next two elections. So in 1913, after uh, this amendment's been passed and ratified, uh, Democrats take power again. And the first thing they do is execute a Bailey-style swap. So they cut all the tariffs down and they switch it over to the income tax system. What was the first uh, tax rate? The, do you, the first tax rates in that? Yeah, uh, they, they're very low, less than 10%. I think the first ones uh, hovered around 5% on, on some of the uh, upper income categories. And that really persists until World War One. So really low – uh, top marginal rates, most people are exempt from it. Then uh, World War One kicks in. They adopt an emergency revenue measure to pay for the war, and then they start jacking rates up to 50, 60, 70 percent. But this wasn't a populist revolt against the Gilded Age robber barons. It Not was... at all. It's a um, it's a free trader revolt <laughs> against uh, the cronies and protectionists that are uh, are basically using the government to uh, to enrich industries on, on the backs of consumers. Uh, and so now we're we're back to this world where I think before we would we thought that even when the Bill Clinton era, uh, we thought that it was kind of accepted that you wouldn't have taxes above fifty percent, and uh, we, I think it's forty two now, or if I'm correct about the top top yeah, margin. Thirty nine, and they just cut it down to thirty six. Yeah, something or another was the, the the recent Trump revision. And there's a pretty good consensus on that, and now we have these seventy percent tax rates, which I think we've identified has to do with both this 
erroneous story about inequality, or at least not complete story about inequality, uh, and just something against rich people, and also trying to pay for stuff that they're proposing. Um, uh, now, could we pay for these? Say, let's say the Green New Deal. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I don't, I don't. We'll just take that one. But uh, you know, we, we could even just say you know high speed rail, but just the Green New Deal. Yeah. Could we pay for that with effective seventy percent? heavily policed paid tax rates on the rich, do you think? I don't think we could come anywhere close to it. Uh, some of the, the recent estimates that they're uh, projecting, if you carry all the Green New Deal programs into an exi existence, it's something like a, a $96 trillion package in total. Uh, it amounts to several trillion dollars in additional spending every year. Uh, there's like, no way that in like the, the world that we could even get uh, closer to that. I think uh, one study I saw estimated up the total income of say like the 500 richest Americans, so um, all the billionaires, the uh, uh, the Bill Gateses and Mark Zuckerbergs and Jeff Bezoses of the world, and if you had a hundred percent confiscation of their income uh, and devoted it to the, uh, the the federal government, and they didn't just, change their behavior at all, yeah, <clears throat> and they just kept everything working. that they yeah. had right now, uh, all their wealth and seized it, uh, you could maybe pay for the government for something uh, like six to eight months. So it's not anywhere close to uh, being able to pay for this extravagant spending that we could get out of it. Uh, the world uh, GDP. So it's, it's not really a, a fiscal issue that's driving it, uh, which is the oddity of it. So it's a, a mixture of resentment against the wealthy. Uh, there is a desire for uh, a revenue grab for various odds and ends. I think the more revenue that comes into the federal government, the easier it is for uh, uh, members of Congress to, to think that they have a new uh, – a bucket of money they can tap, but um, it, it's it's so out of whack from financial reality that even if everything they promised could be done, which it can't, uh, you, you know you, you're not even getting anywhere near close to paying for some of the pipe dream programs that these people are projecting. Yeah, you said ninety six trillion dollars. I was saying the world GDP is about eighty trillion. So you can buy a planet uh, yeah. for for what? <laughs> The, the the they're proposing on this, but but they have another idea um, that they're shockingly blasé about uh, right. modern monetary theory. I, it, the conversation about this is kind of blowing my mind. So I, uh, I have a quote here from Matt Brunig, who is not a libertarian. <laughs> let's put it that. <laughs> let's put it mildly. Uh, but he says. Um, it has become clear to me that the bulk of MMT, modern monetary theory discourse, is not really about what the best policy instruments are for maintaining price stability and debt stability, but rather about using word games to make people believe that the U.S. can have northern European levels of government spending without northern European levels of taxation. So he's not even a fan, but if you talk to AOC's fans, it's, it's obvious. So first of all, what is modern monetary theory? Yeah, so it's this uh, kind of a fringe uh... – thought that developed out of uh, some really heterodox schools of economics. Most of them are on the pretty far left. Uh, you, you have this group that considers itself, they call themselves post-Keynesians. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but it, you go to economics conferences, there's always little pockets of these obscure heterodox schools that are always claiming the mainstream of economics is against them. Uh, but that's the genesis point of where this idea comes about. And modern monetary theory, it's basically a uh, – I mean I call it a scheme to uh, – that, that asserts that the government can and should use its position as a, mon a monopoly issuer of the currency uh, to essentially debt finance, uh, to essentially take on financial extravagance. And that's a little bit of a simplistic form. They do say that there are uh, – 
uh, some constraints on that because uh, we, we know from history, you know, if you, if you use government uh, currency issuance to do uh, nothing but debt finances, uh, you're in Venezuela territory, you're in Zimbabwe territory, hyperinflation. Uh, but the modern monetary theorists essentially want to capture uh, the benefit of uh, of using currency as a uh, um, currency issue as a as a, uh, a a means of funding their programs, but at the same time they view the tax system as a lever, something that you implement uh, to constrain any uh, price instability that emerges from this uh, uh, this debt extravagance uh, before hyperinflation kicks in. Uh, so uh, the monetary side of it, uh, 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 currency issuance is the payment mechanism, and uh, the fiscal side, uh, taxation, including these uh, 70% rates that they're proposing, are the lever or, or the break that you put on uh, uh, basically expectations-induced hyperinflation that comes uh, uh, in the long run as a result of, uh, of years and years of this uh, kind of monetary extravagance. Uh, so it's a, it's a really out there type of a theory, uh, doesn't really have much of a following in the economics profession other than these obscure little heterodox schools uh, of thought. Yeah. Uh, so even Paul Krugman has taken swings at this thing in his uh, New York Times column. I think he's written on it three or four times uh, already, basically saying, look, this is uh, 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 this is like a fairy tale. This is a fringe theory. Uh, we can't believe that anyone's proposing a, uh, a serious uh, federal funding program that's premised upon this. But what it gets down to is the Ocasio-Cortez proposal, the Green New Deal, the jobs guarantee, uh, the lottery list of all the things that these people want. They are so expensive, so extravagant that they're kind of backed into a corner on how to pay for them, the question of how to pay for them, uh, because the only monetary conception uh, that could even – conceivably function in this world of what they want is this modern monetary theory idea uh, that they've proposed. So the, uh, it, it's, it's almost like the, uh, uh, the, the God of the gaps of public finance that they've just <laughs> seized onto uh, and said that here's our magic answer. So as a result, uh, we don't have to answer pressing questions uh, from obvious uh, budget hawks, but not even that, just that from, uh, from really anyone in the realm of public finance that looks at this and says, Wait a minute! Uh, this is spending extravagance uh, beyond anything we've ever seen in the history of the world. Well, I think that they their frustration is, if I put myself in their shoes for a second, is that in the Scandinavia, their favorite part of the world, they have a bunch of they have extreme global warming mitigation, a lot of uh, wind wind energy and hydroelectric. They have universal health care and they pay for college. So they kind of say, well, they do it there, so. Somehow they pay for it, so we can do it here. Which I mean, I guess in the abstract is true, but but how do they do it there? Right, right. Well, it, you find it varies country by country, but a lot of these Scandinavian countries—they're very small populations. They're very homogenous populations. Uh, aren't really growing. Uh, there's there's not uh, a terribly high uh, amount of, um, of of change occurring to those economies. Uh, they're not terribly dynamic economies. Uh, the one thing that they never tell you, all these people that love the, the social spending and high taxes in Scandinavia, uh, most of the Scandinavian co uh, countries are actually fairly low regulation and generally pretty free trade um, in ways that uh, many of the people in the Ocasio-Cortez crowd uh, would not be so comfortable with. 
Well, they also pay a lot of taxes. I mean, the, this is the thing, the middle class, which kind of goes back to the whole theme of this episode, because the middle class yeah. pays a lot of taxes where right, right. if we're talking about, we, we have, you know, the inequality that comes from Piketty, the 1% narrative coming from Occupy Wall Street, this sort of modern element of democratic socialism, but there's an earnest belief that either the rich can can have enough to pay for all this and then modern monetary theory and no one's taxes have to go up. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So it, it's a, it's basically punting on the question of what types of steps you'd have to necessarily take. So yeah, Scandinavian tax rate on an average middle class household is much higher than the U.S. Uh, eventually, you hit a point where you tap out the ability to tax the rich. Uh, one story I like to tell, going back to the supposed golden age of the mid century, uh, when uh, uh, the New Deal has been solidified and uh, marginal tax rates on the rich are much much higher than they are today. Well. Tax rates in the poor were also a lot higher than they are today. Uh, today, lower income people, uh, through a variety of exemptions, do not have to pay much in the way of federal income tax. And I think that's a good policy to have. Uh, you don't want to stick it to uh, the people that, that are the least well off in society. Well, what Franklin Roosevelt did, even though he's supposedly this great progressive uh, model that we should all build policy after, is during World War II, he used the um, uh, the demands of uh, war finance, uh, the, the emergency of the war, to jack up the income tax rates on poor people. He expanded the federal tax base to poor people. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, prior to World War II, less than 10% of all households paid federal income taxes. In 1945, at the end of the war, take a guess of how high uh, that had jumped to. It was over 90%. Uh, 80 or, yeah, 80 or 90%. Yeah. Yeah. So in the course of five years, you go from the uh, a very small, mostly middle to upper class segment of society pays income taxes to everyone pays income taxes. Not only that, it's taken out of your payroll. It's uh, automatic payroll deduction. So FDR, this great progressive uh, uh, president, he's actually presides over one of the most regressive developments in uh, American tax history, and that's the expansion of the federal tax base onto poor people. So that persists uh, in various forms through the mid-century. Eisenhower does reduce it and alleviate it through the exemptions he passes. Kennedy cuts taxes. Uh, uh, so there are successions of retreat from that. But it's really this FDR system of taxing lower to middle income that allows you to pay for this uh, financial extravagance that they uh, uh, the Scandinavian style financial extravagance that they want to bring into the United States. But none of them are willing to say that that's exactly what they want to do. And if you think about it historically, it's only the quirk of World War II that allows this to come in uh, and really become a permanent fixture of the tax system. I imagine without much resistance, World War II, probably people were happy to pay taxes or relatively happy. Right, right. So there's a, a patriotic fervor. And even to add on to that, uh, uh, working age young men. Uh, where are they during World War II? Well, they're all in the army. But they get an exemption for being in the, exactly. in the war, correct? Exactly. So they uh, they had their uh, a combat zone tax exemption. They don't have to pay income tax on their uh, their military pay. That seems sensible so, to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's interesting, and it's still in effect. But uh, they enact that during World War II. And then 1946, all these young men come home from the war, and suddenly they're, they're resuming their jobs, and suddenly there's a big chunk of their payroll being uh, taken out of place that, oh, by the way, we passed three or four years earlier uh, when you were away and no one really noticed it. So slipped in the back door. Yeah. There's one thing, more, more thing I want to ask you about modern monetary theory because you, you've 
made an interesting comparison in your uh, new essay, Postmodern Monetary Theory, where you collapsing two of your interests, which is uh, sort of navel-gazing or, or introspective academics who just talk to each other, uh, especially of the critical theory type, and these modern monetary theorists and the sort of the bizarre way they behave. What, what is that analogy? Yeah, so uh, it, it's a, a commentary, and I'm actually saying that uh, modern monetary theory is probably better dubbed or designated postmodern monetary theory, uh, and it comes from a style of argumentation uh, that became really popular in the humanities in the 1950s through the present, and that is uh, uh, essentially you reject empiricism, you reject the idea that there's an objective fact or a, a point of truth that you can compare something to, uh, and it shifts into an epistemic base that is really rooted in experience or uh, rooted in certain ways of studying issues. So it's, it's really head in the clouds kind of philosophical stuff in the, uh, the, the postmodern philosophy world. Uh, and what I argue in that essay uh, from the other day is that uh, the modern monetary theorists have adopted a lot of the same strategies in conveying their idea. Uh, so rather than presenting an economic theory that's uh, that's chained to a specific model and that's tested in action where you take uh, empirical data to see how this would play out uh, and try to predict it, uh, rather they built up kind of this, this niche insular school of thought of people that are trained specifically in modern, modern monetary theory, uh, use its jargon, use its proprietary understanding of, uh, of how currency operates, uh, really goes back to uh, an older theory of currency that most of the profession rejected, uh, called chartalism. And they only cite each other. Yeah, so they're they're neo chartalists in a <laughs> sense, and they they have a uh, a set of proprietary jargon and uh, and theory built up around that uh, that's taken place in the century or so since then. Uh, but what you have today is when they engage their critics, you could have like a mainstream economist, and this could be anyone from uh, someone on the free market side to Paul Krugman says, uh, wait a minute, where's your evidence? Or wait a minute, can you give me a coherent explanation of this theory that uh, that fits within the literature of modern economics? And they come back and it's kind of this hand-waving exercise and they say, well, I've been working on this for 30 years. Uh, you obviously aren't trained in it, so you don't understand uh, the truth of my uh, uh, my contribution here. And if you want to learn on it, you need to go do that training as well. Here's my 500-page uh, inter internet ma manifesto on uh, how uh, modern monetary theory operates. And until you uh, read that and come back uh, convinced of the truth of it as well, uh, I don't need to answer you as a critic. And that's been uh, – I know it's a little bit of a caricature, but if you, if you go into, uh, uh, say, like the Twitter feeds or some of the internet debates of the people that are pushing this thing, it really does – Devolve into that realm, and then some of the major economists that are uh, arguing for it in the modern monetarist, uh, modern monetary theory uh, uh, sector, are uh, very dismissive in the way that they engage their critics. Uh, uh, they almost say it's like it's it's on the burden of our critics to uh, understand the strengths and weaknesses of our argument as we understand them. And if they don't, that's, uh, that's kind of its own evidence that uh, they're not equipped, uh, not qualified to critique us. And as an academic historian by training, you, you, you've seen a lot of this in the history world and, and now oh, it's creeping into, <laughs> creeping into economics, which is interesting. Now, I guess there's a big question here of, since we have this inequality and in taxes and proposals to pay for this stuff, but, 
should we care about inequality at all? Or should, liber- should libertarians or, or, or in, in a broader sense, should we care about it? Right, right. And this is a complex question uh, that I always go back to. Uh, I think we should care about elements of inequality. Uh, there's always going to be economic inequality. That's just the nature of, uh, of um, uh, you know, human interaction and uh, the nature of having a society that's actually capable of producing things. You've got to reward your entrepreneurs uh, or else there's no motive to be an entrepreneur. Uh, so in one sense, there is an economic argument that inequality is something that's unavoidable. It's not something that's terribly resonant either on on uh, people's minds unless you accept kind of like this Marxian dogma that people associate with classes. Uh, so quite a bit of it does come out of that. Uh, but at the same time, there are also certain things that the government does that can unjustly make people less equal or move them away from access to economic opportunity. Uh, or unjustly enrich someone. So I like to talk about inequality as rather being, uh, in, instead of the usual, the 1% versus the 99%, let's talk about it in a different slice. Let's look at the uh, the class of people that are producing things and reaping the rewards of earning from producing things versus a class of people that are uh, maybe lobbying the government for a, uh, a Cush uh, solar power um, energy contract. Or, uh, or maybe uh, capturing a segment of, uh, of public revenue and rediverting it to a friend. Mm-hmm. So uh, th- things that are not done through their own uh, uh, merit, but rather through their political con- connections. And I do see that as something that does worsen inequality. Uh, we can go back historically. Uh, inequality is a problem when it's imposed through unjust societal imposition. So segregation uh, being the, uh, the, the classic example from American history. Uh, which I always point out as well, uh, you know, Piketty talks about the economic golden age of the 1950s when we're all more equal. Uh, if you're a black person living in the South in 1950, you probably are not in agreement with that uh, for some very obvious reasons. Uh, and that's missed in this measurement approach that he takes. That's that's just not captured. Uh, but that's purely a um, an outcropping and a function of a very insidious type of government policy that uh, automatically puts some people – uh, at a disadvantage just as a matter of law. They can't even enter into economic life uh, the same way that someone that's not covered by segregation would be. Uh, so that exacerbates a bad type of social inequality. And, and we see hundreds of examples of this across history. Uh, inheritance laws in the 19th century, if you're female, are very much stacked against you. That makes you less less equal than the remainder of society, uh, and it puts you not only at social disadvantage but economic uh, disadvantage. So in that sense, I say, yeah, absolutely, inequality matters when it's a product of bad laws, bad policy. It's something that we need to study, something we need to understand. Uh, but when your uh, your whole framework for viewing this uh, uh, this issue is chained to uh, again the the Prince John and Robin Hood thing, taxes, taxes, more taxes. Uh, you missed that part of the story. Thanks for listening. Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.